Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by authors, podcasters, filmmakers, and general movie experts, Will Sloan and Justin DeClue. When you're talking about some of the most memorable filmmakers of the 80s and 90s, people like Martin Scorsese, Jonathan Demme, uh, Joe Dante, Ron Howard, and James Cameron, you're talking about people who got their start with the little production and distribution house called New World Pictures, and thus one Roger Corman. We've discussed 70s Corman in our Death Race 2000 episode, as well as touched on him when we talked about AIP and Vincent Price earlier this season. But we haven't really looked at the power of New World Pictures, soon to be New World Entertainment, and later like all things must become a subsidiary of Fox and then Disney. But if you love movies, you need to know a bit about the company and Corman. Don't worry, it is fun and it is weird. Justin, before we get into all of that, do you have a favorite Corman movie you want to recommend off the top just so our listeners know who we're dealing with? Definitely. I would uh, let listeners know that they need to check out Hollywood Boulevard. And the reason for that is that it's kind of representative of everything that Corman was doing in the 70s, that it was a film that was made on a bet by Joe Dante and Alan Arkish <laughs> and uh, John Davidson that they could bring a movie like cheaper than Corman had ever done. And the way that they did it was by using stock footage from other movies. So you would have an actor firing a machine gun, she'd look in one direction, then you'd see footage from the Philippines exploding. It's also a <laughs> film made by a bunch of young, hungry cinephiles that want to put everything that they love in a movie, whether it be a Godzilla costume or a homage to Mario Bava. And it also has the greatest fake film company to ever be featured in any movie. Miracle Pictures. If it's good, <laughs> it's a miracle. <laughs> I love how Corman had them so brainwashed. It was like, get it cheaper, get it cheaper, get it cheaper. Because mm-hmm. that's all they could do. We're going to get into that. Will, how about yourself? Do you have one you want to recommend for the folks at home? Well, uh, since Justin has chosen one that he produced, I'll try to pick one that he directed. You know, I love Roger Corman as a director. He made something in the area of 50 or 60 films as a director. And I think as a director, he's a great producer. Like he in the 60s, he had a period of, you know, he had his his finger in the air and he was really seeing which way the winds were blowing. And he was just great at spotting trends at that time and making reasonably intelligent exploitation films on those trends, Uh, you know, while also like being an incorrigible cheapskate and doing these productions that all sorts of hilarious stories come out of. So, I mean, I don't know, in the 60s, there's an amazing run of films. Uh, all the Edgar Allan Poe films are amazing. The Trip is incredible, I think. The Wild Angels is certainly interesting. It's not one of my favorites, but it's like an interesting movie of its time. The Intruder is uh, a very powerful film. I think my favorite Roger Corman film, though, is from 1959. It's A Bucket of Blood, and it's this great sweet spot. It's sort of on the cusp of he's still making really dirt cheap exploitation movies that are shot in a week or less. And 
he he hasn't quite yet graduated to making movies that are shot in two weeks, which of course is a huge <laughs> extravagant <laughs> expense. And with big stars like Vincent Price in them, you know, that's that's next year. But you can see him becoming a better director in A Bucket of Blood, and you can see him responding to trends that aren't just exploitation trends. So he he wants to make a comedy and he wants to make a black comedy. And he wants to make a movie that's kind of like like there was something in the air at the time called sick humor. That's what they called it. That's what Time Magazine called it. Like Lenny Bruce. That's what oh, okay. the thing was very popular at the time. Nichols and May. Ah, you know, yes. P- which, who aren't very sick, but they made jokes about psychiatrists and 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 marriage. And things that were taboo <laughs> subjects at the time. You uh, can't make fun of institutions. Yes. I, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, it sounds crazy now, but you read the articles that were being written at the time, and that's what they were saying. Um, and A Bucket of Blood is very much in that uh ecosystem of things that were happening at the time. It's this black comedy about a nerdy busboy at a beatnik cafe who wants to become an artist, wants to be respected by all these sophisticated beatnik artists, but he has no talent. He accidentally uh, kills somebody and covers their body in wax. And of course, all the beatniks say, look at this incredible sculpture. This is, this is uh, it speaks to a mankind's existential dilemma, that kind of thing. And so he's like, oh, well, uh, how about, uh, how about you like this? Uh, do you like this sculpture? And he just keeps killing people. I, I, it's a movie of just like great rambunctious energy. It's a wonderful time capsule, I think. It has a great, late 50s beatnik feel to it i don't know if there was ever actually a beatnik coffee house that looked like this but <laughs> but like to to me it is the definitive one it's the it's the one that we all dream about something and, he's so good at though i think is capturing the zeitgeist of uh, of the exploitation what are we afraid of what are we talking about so of course in the 50s you'd have beatniks and then you have hell's angels and then you've got like what are we afraid of now people on motorcycles you know that's that's <laughs> what's coming up um let's talk a bit about uh new world pictures and kind of what he was trying to do there because that's still a bunch of exploitation movies, but it's moving in sort of a different direction. He's definitely got more hands and more pies. Well, throughout the 60s, he was making increasingly ambitious movies for American International Pictures, which was the drive-in studio of the 1960s. Drive-ins and grindhouses, they really cornered the market on it. But uh, you know, his ambitions were growing greater. As a, as a filmmaker, he was increasingly frustrated by some of the uh, uh, tampering that the heads of the company, James Nicholson and Samuel Z. Arkoff, were doing on his work, as well as he just wanted to produce more. And he was getting burnt out also as a filmmaker. So he wanted to take a step back, start his own company. And that's what New World Pictures was, which throughout the 70s became essentially the American International Pictures of the 70s. He more or less stopped directing after 1970, focused full-time on being a producer. And he just cultivated for about 10 or 15 years, really 10 good years, I would say, this like stable of young and, as Justin said, very hungry talent, people with names like James Cameron and Joe Dante, Ron Howard, Paul Bartel, all sorts of uh, very talented people who would the go young on to Paul do Bartel. things. <laughs> yeah. Paul Bartel guess... was never young. I, bear to, <laughs> I beg to differ. He was born balding with a pot belly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, all right, fair enough. He was hungry, though. Uh, probably, <laughs> probably very hungry. And uh, they they made these movies, and I mean, obviously not all the movies were good, but I don't know, even in some of the lesser ones, you you feel that there was this sense of energy, this sense of possibility among the people making these movies. And in, in, the, in the good ones, 
you feel like they're getting away with something. Like they don't have a lot of money to work with, but with the money they have, they've been sort of left alone. And and on some of the movies, like I, f- I forget exactly which Women in Prison movie it was that Jonathan Demme directed. Cage T. Cage T, yes, yes. Those those titles really blur together for me. But apparently Jonathan Demme was like, I'm going to make the very best Women in Prison movie ever made. <laughs> and I don't know if he quite did, but he got close. And you can feel that. You can feel that in the movie. And and yeah, like Hollywood Boulevard. I mean, it, it's 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 a great film. It's people having so much fun. And I don't know, like after 1980, I, if I have one complaint about Roger Corman, it's that like after 1980, you basically never got that again. Well, yeah, I, there's not as much joy, joy in it. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah, I think that after 1980, and people that have worked with him have said this as well, is that Corman kind of got obsessed with how many movies he could make for as cheap mm. as possible. So it didn't become give the keys to young, hungry filmmakers. It became let's get like the minimum using the minimum. And that's why nobody talks about those movies, unless you're talking about something like Carnosaur. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yeah, which which is bad. And that's and by the way, which is like one of maybe three movies from the New Concord era that anybody knows the title of. Like maybe three. Yeah, like even some of the ones I would say are good, like The Unborn, mm-hmm. uh they're not that famous and they're probably not yeah. even that good compared to the 70s ones. But they're yeah. not even pro- like prime for remakes, right? Like Death Race uh, 2000 was remade significantly. Like Humans of the Deep, which we're going to be talking about today, had a remake by Corman. But like lots of uh, lots of remakes of a lot of those earlier movies and really none of those 80s movies, which is interesting to me. Well, after about 1977, Corman became uh, less an innovator and more of a reactor. I mean, as mm. he often likes to say, Jaws came out and Star Wars came out. And with those movies, Hollywood figured out his formula. They they started going after that youth audience with more exploitable subject matter. And you can see that in one of the films we're going to talk about today, which is like a bald-faced Jaws ripoff, one of many Jaws ripoffs he made. And you look at the Corman movies in the 60s and the early 70s, and they are innovative. They are tackling subject matter that major studios were not tackling. And you know, after that, it became more like what he was interested in was survival. Like, how can I how can I continue to survive in this landscape that is increasingly inhospitable to me and the kinds of films I make? And he's still out there. He's still developing projects that are like as bottom rung as you could possibly get, basically. And <laughs> and that's it. And he I think he takes pleasure out of that in some way. He takes pleasure out of the fact that I'm 95 and they still haven't quite taken it away from me. <laughs> I remember someone posted on Twitter like a letter they received from Corman about editing one of their like uh, Sharktopus versus Mega uh, Scorpion or something like that. And it was Corman saying, listen, we've worked on this too hard. You know, cut maybe a second here, uh, add a second there, and then we just got to, you know, put it to bed. Which just baffled me that he was still that involved with his productions. But he still is. is. He's still involved. He loves movies. I think that's what it is, is that he loves movies. And I think the the issue then became is that, like, because he had to continue making money to be able to keep doing it, that's when he got caught up in the process rather than the art and the magic of it, right? He also doesn't want to fail. He wants to stay in business. He wants to keep making movies. And if you're Francis Ford Coppola and you're creating zoetrope pictures and you're making one from the heart, you're going to fail eventually. And you may be put out of business. A Corman never made The Godfather. He never made one from the heart. He never made Apocalypse Now. But he is still, um, you know, he's still playing his game. I mean, the closest he got to was William Shatner's The Intruder. 
And he mm. would still talk about that, like, stung that it failed as badly as it did, even though it's probably one of the best movies he directed. And it probably didn't even lose that much no. money. I mean, he, no. he what did he spend on it? Like $40,000? His margins something. were so tight that, like, any success was a significant success, profit margin-wise, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. All right. Well, of course, he is best known for his B-movie exploitations. And sitting down to a B-movie exploitation movie, you're going to expect a few things. Nudity preferably full frontal, extreme violence, and if you're lucky, some kind of plot to string those two things together. Now, Humanoids from the Deep has all of that and more, but a word of warning before we start. One of the main points of this movie is that the creatures are trying to mate with human women to further their own evolution. It is not voluntary, and that is a very big part of the controversy of this movie. It gets extremely graphic. Now, that having been said, Humanoids of the Deep. Justin, do you want to give us a plot summary on this one? Sure. Well, if any listener has seen Jaws, they've pretty much seen Humanoids from the Deep, <laughs> where it's a take on Creature of the Black I don't recall Jaws Deep. having sex with anyone. Well, I, think I don't know what version of Jaws of you saw. Essentially, there's a small fishing village in California, and there's a new company that's come to town, and they're dropping gross hormones in the water, which is causing these creatures to pop out and to attack and want to mate with the local populace. Of course, there are two adults that uh, want to save the day, including the great Vic Morrow, who appeared in more Jaws ripoffs than it feels like anyone, also <laughs> having a starring role in the Italian exploitation Jaws ripoff, The Great White. While they're trying to figure out what caused these giant mutants to run amok, the mutants are murdering, pulling the tops off, uh, nubile young women on the beach, And as well in the big climax of the picture, crashing the uh, local festival that they're putting on. And I feel like anyone who sees this movie, almost everything fades away except the gigantic just massacre of monsters that happens at the big nighttime festival. Which is pretty great, I gotta say. If you're going to watch this movie, which um, I have to say I had a tough time getting through this, and I don't often have tough times getting through movies. This one was tough for me. Um, that ending is really, I will say, boffo. <laughs> it's it's pretty pretty spectacular. I mean, I'll be honest, not a big fan of Humanoids from the Deep. It's a movie that yeah. when I watch it, I go, I could be watching Piranha instead, which is the better <laughs> I love Piranha. that Corman produced. All right, I'm glad we have some consensus on this because I'm I was watching this movie for the second time in my life and wondering why I don't like it more because it it feels like the ultimate new world pictures movie. It's got all the stuff and it's got a lot of like really kooky crazy things in it that if you were to describe them to me I would say that sounds amazing. And yet, I don't know, to, for me it just kind of sits there. It's not it doesn't have the momentum. It's not it doesn't have the the joie de vivre that I'm looking for. Leonard Malton when he had a conversation fairly recently with Ro- uh, Roger Corman about it, you can see the YouTube clip of them talking about it. He talks about how funny it is. And I was like are you watching the same movie I'm watching? Because I maybe I just don't have a sense of humor. I don't I don't see I, the humor. I think it's very possible he didn't actually watch it. Uh, okay. Because, well, <laughs> I mean, Corman is usually funny while being gross and like like <laughs> Death Race 2000, right? Like there's yeah. it's movie so funny while also being horrifying. I mean, Death Race 2000 is a good example of all the funniness is Paul Bartel and all, uh, you know, the action and the car chase is Roger Corman coming in after they shot going, no, no, we need to add this stuff in. And sometimes there's a good mix there. But with the case of Humanoids from the Deep, which was originally directed by Barbara Peters, she made, uh, according to the people who saw the first cut of the film, a very, uh, you know, straightforward Jaws ripoff. In an interview about the film, Corman says that all the gore was there. 
but he felt that they needed to go in and add more of the sexual elements. Now I can understand if those sexual elements would be like a bikini top popping off or something like that. I'm all for that. <laughs> yeah, like someone being seduced by a ventriloquist sure. doll. That's for me. Hey, honey, want to see my woodpecker? Will I get splinters? Don't worry, baby, I've been sanded. But the fact that it is kind of like a sexual assault that the monsters do on the women, that adds another kind of grimy uh, layer to it. And because it has a mechanical construction from the get-go, with Barbara Peters clearly not wanting to make this kind of movie, like from the get-go, it didn't really interest her. All of it coming together create just an overall unpleasant experience with some highs. Like when you see like the making of documentary and they cut out pieces, if I hadn't seen the movie, I'd be like, I gotta see that movie. You got these Rob Bottin designed effects with Chris Wallace. You got like heads being ripped off and it's great because you can tell they were shot at the last minute because when the head gets ripped off, it's just like a black background. So they shot in a studio <laughs> somewhere. I love all that kind of stuff. You know, I, I've heard multiple interviews with people, including Martin Scorsese, who have talked about the, the theories that Roger Corman will have when he's instructing them on movies. Uh, he's got these exploitable elements down to a science in his head, at least. And he'll often say to them, like, now you must have frontal breast nudity once in the first reel and then again in the fourth reel and then in the third reel uh side nudity you know like he, he knows he knows the he he's knows got his the formula yeah. he knows the beats and he feels he feels very strongly about exactly how much nudity and what kind of nudity needs to be in a movie um and and he uh, you know apparently he cares very much about he cares very much about like facts and data i mean he was an engineer before he was in the film industry and when you read about him like he was always sending his new world pictures people like on on fact finding missions on surveys to shopping malls to be like okay exactly what title does the movie need to have should it be the submersion of japan or should it be tidal wave and i love and, the stories of the guys that were working for him at that time doing that job who figured out they could just fake it they're like we don't need to go we can just make it's like up obviously <laughs> tidal wave obviously they're gonna say tidal wave yeah. Like, yeah but i mean this movie has a certain amount of controversy around it because barbara peters basically disowned the movie and Corman gets a lot of credit, uh, some of it well-deserved, I think, for being the only studio head of his day to regularly hire women at all levels of production, but especially as directors. And some people, including perhaps Roger Corman himself even, might say he was just hiring people who would work cheap. And I mean, some of those produce, people would go on to become huge producers like Gail Ann Hurd, right? Mm -hmm. Like that was a big thing. Who came up with James Cameron? I, I do think in Roger Corman's defense, like... He was hiring people that would work cheap and that he thought could deliver. And there yes. were a lot of people in his position who would not have entrusted that responsibility to women. Well, so, Roger Corman for a while, like the roles that he was hiring women in as well, they needed to have like absurd uh, university degrees because he was <laughs> yeah. all about that. And you read that in his books and you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it means they're smart and that's how this works exactly. that, they, that they have drive and that they're going to you know put up with bull honky to get the job done um we should kind of talk about exactly what happened so joe dante was offered this film and he turned it down because he'd already made piranha which is of course like the most perfect version of what this could possibly be um mm -hmm. and then barbara peters was like hey i'll take it and i can make it fast and cheap and so corman is very interesting in the way he describes this he says because she was a woman and she brought a female point of view to this 
this. Her scenes of the men being attacked were incredibly brutal and violent more than any of my other films. But for any of the assault scenes, the camera cut away to like shadows on a rock, things like that. Which is the way so that when, it should have been. I'm going to be honest. I agree. That's exactly what it should be. I mean, yeah, you can have the tits to have like, you know, that, that it's you get that hint. But like the how graphic the scenes of assault actually are is like, holy shit. So while they're editing this film, um, the editor, I don't remember his name. Mark Goldblatt. He, He's actually Mark, a really oh, famous Mark Goldblatt. editor. He would go on oh, to work okay. with like James Cameron and like all the big action movies. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Of course. Of course, you know that, Justin. Thank you. Um, so he uh, he calls in Corman and he says, hey, this has like this one's a little too serious. Like it, we might need a little bit more in this. Um, and so without her permission, they filmed all of these assault scenes. They filmed um, all this extra stuff and then jammed it into this movie. And the original movie that was being made that all of the actors signed on for was, as you mentioned earlier, much more um, serious, like much more straightforward. And then it becomes this like incredibly intense assault film that I don't think Corman's ever really had anything like that I was in his ask stable. Will, uh, I was trying to think about it. Like, did a lot of his movies feature this kind of stuff? And sometimes they're in the background. Even like yeah. Hollywood Boulevard has a nasty attempted sexual assault, uh, which, which is played for laughs. Film. I'm sorry to say, like yeah. it's a, it's a joke in that film, yeah. which is like a very very kind of like Animal House era laddish mm-hmm. humor. Ah, uh, yes. But uh, as far as like Corman wanting to implement that in a lot of movies, it's not something that really comes to mind as being a major element of any of the pictures he produced other than Humanoids from the Deep. Well, I'm not a huge uh, scholar and expert in the New Concord era of his career, like the stuff he was making in the 90s and the 2000s. But I feel like there's a little more of that there. Mm-hmm. He was making a lot of, I mean, Strip to Kill is not an example of this, but he was making a lot of movies sort of inspired by Strip to Kill. And I think there was... Yeah, he was making a lot of TNA erotic thrillers then that certainly would have had a kind of ugly side to them. There's an interesting documentary called Some Nudity Required, which is by a woman who worked for New Concord, sort of working through her feelings about some of the some of the use of nudity and new concord era movies and her her lack of comfort with it that's sort of that, that that's worth watching. So yeah, I mean I think I think there's more of that later on, although um, I, I can't actually point to specific examples. I mean, even in this movie, there's that exploited development of an actor has said that, you know, they asked her to do nudity. She said no. So they were like, OK, no problem. And then oh, in yes. the finished film, it like cuts to a very buxom uh, naked woman in a shower that's supposed to be that actor. Yes. Cindy Weintraub, who plays Carol Hill, who's the the um, Doug McClure, who's the the main ca- kind of character, the main hero's wife. Um, and yeah, they point a lot to this being this is what's wild to me is so many people point to this as being a feminist film because of the way Cindy Weitraub uh, beats off the the creature that makes it into her house with like cleaning products and it's the revenge of the domestic housewife and it's like sorry what like, I think it's a little bit of like someone writing a thesis in film school and being like <laughs> I need something give me like a film that a woman directed alright let me give a feminist reading to it even though yeah. it may have just been a very journey person job that they were taking but this was so controversial that Anne Turkle who plays 
plays Susan Drake. Like, none of the actors uh, were aware that any of this new stuff had been shot. And so uh, she actually ended up going on the talk show circuit to denounce the movie. And she wanted her name off of it. And so did Barbara Peters. And they and uh, Corman basically said, you want your name off? You buy you pay for all new credits to be made. And they were like, oh, OAC. So they just kind of let it go. It- yeah, I think if anybody has reclaimed this movie as a feminist movie, that just speaks to the dearth of female-directed movies that were being made at the time that you have to, like, go to go to bat for this one. Yeah. I mean, Slumber Party Massacre, I think, has been more widely embraced as a uh, quasi or crypto feminist movie. It was it was directed by Amy Holden Jones. And, the and it writer, was written by Rita Mae Brown. Yes. Very famous feminist writer. Yeah. And that's a movie that is certainly not didactic. It's not overtly. I mean, like anybody, uh, uh, a teenage boy could watch it and have a very good time with it. <laughs> but I don't know. It's It's a movie that. I, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what you think about it because it's a movie that's almost like kind of so misogynistic. It's so over the top with some of those elements that it is that that has a- aided in its reclamation. It's like there's tongue planted firmly in cheek, like that amazing scene early in Slumber Party Massacre where there's the shower scene and the camera comes in and the camera just like goes down and stares at a woman's ass for like. 20 seconds and then goes up (laughs) just like so gratuitous so absurdly gratuitous that it becomes funny but from my understanding that was a movie where the movie was also taken away from her at a certain point like uh we wanted to talk a little bit about corman and women where yes he would hire women but especially as women directors it seems like and i don't know his record of doing this with men but i know he they would make things and then he would often take them away and completely recut them but their name would still be on it it wouldn't actually be theirs well he in fairness pretty- to corman he did do it to Matt. yeah he, he did, did it all to everybody the time. okay uh, the uncredited director on this film jimmy t uh murakami his film battle beyond the stars was completely taken away from him during shooting and yeah, john sales and corman kind of ghost directed that picture and uh, that um director slash he was a special effects guy too doesn't re- get involved with anything battle beyond the stars related corman was someone who uh, according to people that worked with him sometimes it was a little bit confusing what he wanted or what he didn't want but they did say that the advantage was it was always him it wasn't a board of executives giving conflicting notes about what they wanted the movies to be. It was he had a very specific vision, whether you agreed with it or not. And unfortunately, he was willing to take it away from you and tinker with it to kind of enact his vision. Strip to Kill is one of the most frustrating ones. That's a film from 1987. It's directed by Cat Shea. For anyone who doesn't know it, it's about a female cop who goes undercover as a stripper to investigate a serial killer who's targeting strippers. And her original cut of the film was, I think, close to two hours long. Well, she says that that two hour cut was essentially the assembly edit, which is what you do when you get all the footage and you put it all together just to see that it has a chronological flow. And Corman asked to see it. And Kat says that she thought, oh, Corman's been working in this business for decades he understands what an assembly edit is but anybody listening to this if you ever make a movie never show any producer because <laughs> roger corman did whatever produ- producer does when they see an assembly edit is that he freaked out he's like this movie doesn't work what's going on it's so long and cat was like no this is not the finished version of the movie and he didn't care he took it away from her and essentially completed it completed it without her thinking that the film could not be a success and stripped to kill for people that don't know was a massive hit and led essentially to a wave of movies like that most of them produced by roger corman now if i'm not mistaken i i think like a lot of the stuff that he cut out of the film was you know character development Mm -hmm. stuff stuff that was exploring the world of it a bit more and i think one of his prime motivations was 
every movie had to be under 90 minutes because the video cassettes had to be a certain weight so that, <laughs> you know, so that he could save money on shipping them. <laughs> that was his pri- primary motivation. Oh, Roger. Well, I want to point people to it in the direction of this movie as being like, the most inception-y version of Corman as can possibly be, because it apparently has all of his hallmarks where, like, it's got nudity, it's got violence, it's got etc. But then he also remade it again in the 90s, but used a bunch of footage from the original, including all of the stuff at the giant fair that gets torn apart, which is just wild well, to me. It's like the most Corman thing ever. remakes. Like, they <laughs> mostly exist to be stumbled upon on IMDb and be like, wait, they made a version of Piranha in the 90s? What was going on there? <laughs> There's a version of uh, A Bucket of Blood starring Anthony Michael Hall. I yeah, think. and I Will should... Ferrell and David Cross are in it as well. Whoa, and it's all about okay. the really? art scene as opposed to, you know, the one when Corman made his original. That's the only one that is vaguely interesting. But even that I haven't checked out because I'm like, oh, 90s Roger Corman produced film. <laughs> <laughs> I also want to point to this as a debut for uh, Linda Shane, who people might remember from season one. We talked about her as the uh, writer of Screwballs. Uh, she also ended up in the Jim Wynorski camp. Uh, she's in Munchie and Munchie 2. Um, and uh, she gets her acting debut here as Miss Salmon, who just basically smiles in her little bathing suit in this, like, uh, at the fair in this radio booth. And she's she's lovely. She's perfectly lovely. But yeah, she'd go on to do a bunch of her own exploitation movies, both directing and writing, which is just wild to me. No. Uh, I, I would say that people will continue to stumble on this movie and be a little bit disappointed. And I'm, I'm sorry for that. Because part of that canon them. of Roger Corman films, when you're talking about this era of his producing, even though we should point out he is uncredited on the film. It's also pretty available. Like a lot of Corman stuff, like you really have to hunt for. And this one is on Shutter. Like there's a bunch of versions available. There's a Blu-ray with like a ton of stuff on it. So it has this mythos in the community of people who really love it and people who love it, love it. It was part of that wave of uh, DVD and Blu-ray releases that Shout Factory did where they did like a bunch of classic Corman stuff. They did uh, Piranha, Battle Beyond the Stars, Humanoids from the Deep. And they had tons of special features. And I think that because it was part of that wave. And it's also one of those films that there's an air of like, mystery to it like oh they added stuff do i have the uncut version oh is this like the complete uh version that was all the nudity in it and i think that's why a lot of people want to check it out as well and then when you finally see it you're like yeah yeah that's all there but and eh, the other stuff around it's not that good do i get more rob Botine creatures where they've been sewing into the costumes and you can see one who's got the rip up the back like oh, that's what rob i want <laughs> i love him so much it, it is a movie that delivers the goods though i yes. think that that helps it there are a lot of Roger Corman movies. There are a lot of exploitation movies that don't deliver the goods. Yeah, this, but it's like this... a buffet and it's all been sitting yeah. there for like two days. Kind of <laughs> yeah, smells I, off. And the people feeding you are just like, this is what I do every day. Here you go. Like seaweed. All right. Well, that brings us into our next movie. When we come back, we've talked about Jaws ripoffs. But guys, this is my favorite of the bunch, including of Piranha. I love this so much. We're going to be talking about Alligator. That's coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Of the many, many Jaws ripoffs and creature features, Alligator is, as I mentioned, one of my absolute favorites. Written by Corman staple John Sayles and directed by Cujo's very own Louis Teague, Alligator is a self-aware entry into the giant thing that kills and eats smaller things that run and scream genre. It also features an enormous alligator who's 36 feet long, weighs 2,000 pounds, and is delightfully named Ramon. And of course, lives in the sewers of... Chicago, I think, possibly somewhere in Missouri. It's never quite clear. Leonard Malton in his review said, if you've got to make a movie about a giant alligator, this is the way to do it. Will, do you agree? Uh, I do agree. And I I think the question of the film setting is pertinent because uh, Wikipedia says Chicago. Uh, Roger Ebert's review says New York. It could be anywhere. I, I but like the to license think New plates York. are Missouri. Yeah, well, I think it did. Did it not escape from Missouri, uh, or or am I am I wrong? I and don't they know. shot it, it in Los Angeles. Not the bad. Yes, <laughs> just to add more complications. Yeah. All some, right, it, it feels New York to me. It it has that kind of like grizzled texture. Yeah, I always it. thought it was New York because the, the alligator getting lost in New York is such the urban legend. So that's yeah. what you would associate with this kind of story. And, and also, what city do you associate with a sewer system and a New grimy York. sewer system? New yeah. York. That you so can actually travel York, through. Even yes. if it's not true. Isn't that where the Ninja Turtles live? New York? That's the <laughs> ultimate sewer system. Yeah, it's it's where it's where Jason himself got, got <laughs> burned <Manhattan>. by acid. <laughs> Will, before we go too far, can you give us like a little brief rundown of the plot here? Well, uh, an alligator is loose in New York, possibly. <laughs> uh, and it, it, it's killing people. And on the case is Detective David Madison. A, a a grizzled and damaged police officer played by the great Robert Forrester, who I really think should have been allowed to play James Bond. I love him so much, and I'm kind of with you. He's so fabulous. Forrester uh, has been engulfed in scandal through his career because uh, he was previously with the St. Louis Police Department, where uh, during during a botched case, one of his partners was killed. The press realizes this when they are interviewing him at a press conference. So they really had the knives out for him. And then on this investigation, uh, his another of his partners dies, is eaten wholesale by this alligator. <laughs> now, of course, nobody believes the story. To tweak the old Oscar Wilde phrase, to lose one partner is tragedy, to lose both is carelessness. So anyway, they're having <laughs> trouble. Uh, uh, Ro- Robert Forster, uh, he has a romantic relationship uh, there, there's a tabloid reporter. I mean, what do you want? It all climaxes at at a big fancy rich person party where the mayor gets eaten. They uh, literally eat the rich. Like if you want some really fantastic um, satire here, it's like, yeah, just just eat the fucking rich. It's so satisfying. <laughs> uh, there is also a big game hunter played by the great Henry Silva who comes <sighs> in. Henry Silva. I mean, I think what I like about this movie more than anything is just the assortment of 
uh, strange looking character actors that there are. There's the great Michael Gazzo as the chief. There's Dean Jagger from Game of Death as, uh, uh, you know, a local tycoon. You got Henry, you got Henry Silva. I mean, who looks a little better than he would in later years, but still can looks we like talk Henry about Silva. Sue Lyon, like Lolita herself playing the news reporter who's being hit on by him while he's doing like the weird animal mating calls? Your alligator is a very romantic creature. It gets the itch, come spring, and it'll give up with a sound, something like this. And that will attract another alligator? Well, uh, I'm hoping so. I'm counting on it. Wait, I did not realize that was Lolita. That's okay. Lolita. Uh, okay. What a cast Sorry. this movie has. No stars <laughs> in the sky because they're all an alligator. <laughs> and and I also just want to say that uh, popular Borscht Belt comedian Jack Carter plays the mayor. So, you know, I, I think what I what I I'm going to pay this movie my highest compliment, which is that there's something kind of Larry Cohen ish about the movie mm. in this assortment of bizarre character actors. And also just in the positive, I think, upbeat tone of the film, you could not have a more bog standard plot than this. But it's uh, written, of course, by the great John Sayles. But it's delivered, I think, with a certain energy. It's delivered with a certain humor. People always call this movie a spoof, and I, I guess it sort of is. But th- it's not like it's a movie with jokes exactly. Yeah, I don't it's think just it's a, a movie with a certain air. When Lewis Teague talked about the movie, which he does very eloquently on the commentary track, he mentions that like he studied Jaws and like stole beats off of it to kind of deliver the alligator action. And I think that he does it very well, that when the alligator shows up, it doesn't feel like a joke. It's like, ah, man, this alligator rocks. Eat those people. May I also point out the fact he kills a child. And he was like, oh, this is just a scene of like, my family and I, we used to play pirates in the front yard. So why wouldn't one of us get eaten? <laughs> like, it's wild. that Kids don't get killed in these movies. And I was just, a little bit sad because I remember the kid jumping off the diving board and an alligator just popping out of the water, opening its mouth and the kid falling into it. You which does were not thinking happen, but, you of know, Jurassic World. special edition that I'm sure Louis Teague will work on. He'll do that with CG. <laughs> well, I think the difference, one difference between this and Jaws and one reason why this is considered a spoof and Jaws isn't is because you see the alligator a lot. They do not hide the alligator. And there's something just inherently very funny about the sight of a big, dumb rubber alligator killing people and throwing people's bodies through the air. And, you know, uh, to the movie's credit, the movie shows you these things and it's obviously very funny, but then it doesn't it doesn't make a joke of these things. It, it Everybody is just very serious and all the actors, many great actors delivering it totally stone faced, not seemingly tongue in cheek. Most of all, Robert Forster, who I think is just fantastic in this movie. I mean, Robert Forster has never energy. given a bad performance. I think he's incapable of even in like South Korean direct like Dragon Wars. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because of the way that he talks and the way that there's that kind of like blue collarness about him and that you feel like he's your friend right from the get go. And I mean, one of the running gags in this movie is like one of the overtly comedic elements is the fact that everyone mentions that Robert Forster's going bald. <laughs> and this is something that Forster himself brought to the script that like supposedly during shooting, he's like, wouldn't it be funny if people made fun of the fact that like my hair, you can clearly see that male pattern baldness is. Uh, <laughs> Now, did did Robert Forster ever have a heartthrob period? Because even in this movie, he, I mean, he has he a did. kind of, he feels like the human equivalent of a wrinkled suit. In the first movie he ever appeared in, Reflections in the Golden Eye, 
he is completely nude riding a horse in the film. He is the ultimate example of a heartthrob in that picture. Is yeah. he oiled at the same time? Ooh, I don't remember. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> you'd have I to need ask these John details, Houston Justin. Directed it. Did they oil him up before they threw him on that horse? I think what's interesting to me is that uh, to look at this movie, you wouldn't go, hey, this is what had Tarantino reinvigorate his career with Jackie Brown. This is the one instead of Medium Cool, which you would have thought would have been a Tarantino like big latch point. I it's feel this. like Tarantino has not seen Medium Cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. Tarantino has done so many interviews lately. I've heard him on so many podcasts and you really start to understand the dimensions of his taste, where the windows and walls of his taste are. And you realize he really does like just watch exploitation movies. He has huge gaps outside of that. <laughs> uh, the other thing we should point out here, this is a lovely little piece of trivia, is apparently Brian Cranston was a PA on this and uh, he helped create like some of the intestines and he was doing a bunch of the like of the of the special effects and like when he's chomping down on people, you're seeing bits go everywhere. Um, and he has such fond memories of being a PA and working on this. Apparently it was such a pleasant experience that whenever he would run into Robert Forrester or into uh, Robin Riker, he would be like, hey, I was a PA and I really enjoyed working with you guys. It was really cool to watch you work. And he was just and both like, of them were like, please, Brian, you have a job for us on Breaking Bad. <laughs> oh, Robin Riker is fine. She got on the soap opera circuit and she's fine. I was going to say that Robert Forster got on Breaking Bad. He had like yes. a very memorable character that actually reoccurred in the final movie they did as well. That's probably part of it. I wouldn't be surprised as they were, you know, may as well help a buddy out. <laughs> so, I was surprised to about... learn that Kane Hodder, the Jason himself, was in the alligator suit in this movie. <laughs> yeah, the definitive screen Jason. And I, I, I really think you can tell. Uh, <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> now, I have, if we're talking about gaps in people's viewership, Will, you have not seen Cujo. Yes, we were talking about this before, and there's there's a lot of Lewis Teague that I haven't seen. And I'm curious your perspective, Becky. Like, uh, is there an authorial signature? What is the Teague touch that he brings to this? I got to ask, Justin, have you seen Cujo? Uh, yeah, I have. Because, of course, when okay. I saw Alligator like a decade ago, I'm like, I like this Lewis Teague guy. I'm going to see more <laughs> of his movies. <laughs> um, I mean, he has a mix of, like, um, there's humor in in a lot of his stuff. But I think the fact that he focuses on the human characters while, like, these evil things are coming to get them, people having a really bad day, and then it just gets like exponentially worse once this thing comes and it's always relentless like it never it never slows down for a minute it's always like hey here's the next thing here's the next thing here's the next thing and i really like that i mean lewis teague is the ultimate journeyman yeah i mean he started with roger corman he shot second unit on death race 2000 supposedly most of the action stuff that paul bartell didn't want in the movie he went on and he made the lady in red a john sales script and then from there it was like alligator and then kind of like a bunch of ripoffs because you have fighting back which is kind of you know a vigilante you know taking over back your block kind of movie he did the jewel of the nile the sequel to romancing the stone and then probably his biggest hit was navy seals who yes. navy seals yeah from, from <laughs> and, clerks well i mean his real biggest hit is my favorite buddy cop comedy <laughs> collision course starring jay leno and pat Morita. Mm-hmm. yes but again these are all action movies right and like hiring a journeyman to do action, obviously they have to have that sort of competence, which he does. Like his action stuff is always really fun and really, um, it ba- goes back and forth between it can be hyper violent or it can just be straight comedy, like in Death Race, right? You get a little bit of everything. And I really appreciate that. I think that's a hard balance to strike. There's a joy in the stunt work that you get the feeling that this guy has shot second unit. Like an alligator, there's a scene where they're like putting bombs and then randomly, like, 
you know, they're chasing the alligator and the boat crashes and explodes. There's a lot of slow motion <laughs> stunts in this movie. I got to say, I think the special effects in the movie are actually kind of good. Like, I think the alligator is quite impressively rendered. I, I think, mean, he you know, I'm not usually a fan of real animals uh, interacting like, you know, with the movie, like any shark film. And you got myself real footage of sharks. Get that out of there. No, thank you. But because they could put like the alligator within the confines of like the miniature sets that they built, it looks really good. I mean, alligators uh themselves look rubbery so they are perfect to, to kind of render on screen i appreciate too you can see the jaws touches right so like you initially something i love is when the, the tabloid photographer gets eaten he takes pictures of his own death which is mm -hmm. actually the headline the next day which is very <laughs> funny but um you see like you know the pictures of the how big the jaws are and like this huge eye and all this sort of stuff and then you don't get the reveal till the very end of this creature but they use their budget really wisely in taking that lesson from jaws of like okay we're going to see little glimpses first and then we're going to give you the whole enchilada and it's going to be awesome i also think that like jaws you enjoy spending time with the human characters and in fact you perhaps even enjoy spending time with them more than you do the beast which is not the case in humanoids from the deep <laughs> in that movie you're kind of just waiting for the next horrific assault sequence to happen <laughs> yeah it's a terrible sense of anticipation whereas here you're like when are we gonna get the alligator back i love him so much well i think you love him but you also just love hanging out with robert forster you do movie. i'm with you I think yeah. the difference is like probably the John Sayles script. And I mean, the famous story goes that he wrote this and Piranha at the same time. And depending who came to the door, he'd be like, who is it? And if it was like Joe Dante, like, give me a second. And you hear like, as like the typewriter would change <laughs> and he would switch to Piranha. And that probably brings a lot of the eccentricities to the film. Like, especially all the human stuff, like you meet a character's mom and she's very eccentric or the oh scene God. where the kid sees the alligator burst out of the ground and he runs into his home and his mother's like, what are you doing? What's my good knife? Put that knife <laughs> Don't take down. my good knife out into the streets. Not, hey, stop running with that bladed object. It's just don't bring it out into the streets. My Joey, come back here. Nobody's got my friend knife. Joey's driving me crazy. I do like John Sayles's incredibly two-pronged career of being a very sort of upper middle brow filmmaker who often self-finances these very thoughtful movies like Lone Star and The Return of the Sakaka Seven. And then he like the real moneymaker is just grinding out scripts that are like really base exploitation scripts. Uh but but like good base exploitation scripts, you know, tongue-in-cheek, smart, knowing stuff. I love that the original version of this, uh, apparently it was set in Milwaukee and the alligator grew gigantic because the beer from a brewery was going into the sewers. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, okay, that's a very different movie. I mean, both movies that we talked about, it's a gross hormone double bill because both uh, creatures are the results of gross hormones being dropped in the water. Now, here's something that makes it very 1980 instead of 1970, is this is the first time we're talking about DNA alteration, growth hormones. Like, um, you don't really have that as a plot point before this point, but because of the 80s, that's like, you know, the human genome and, and all that. That's when this starts to become plot points in horror films. And I think that's kind of an interesting turning point. You're right. Yeah, it's mean, not, it's not uh, nuclear possible, stuff. Like radioactive alligator. <laughs> <laughs> I pr I prefer radioactive alligators to tell you the truth. Mm. I like uh I I like that as a menace rather than these uh more 
more everyday concerns of genetically altered stuff. But uh, that's just my personal taste. Do you know, Becky, the backstory of this film of like who made it? I was looking into it and it's a film that is infamously unavailable on Blu-ray because nobody knows who owns the rights. There isn't a big company that made it. And if you look at the production credits, it's just the alligator company, essentially. And that's what makes me wonder if this was intending to be a money laundering thing. Oh, and probably. if that's yeah. that's what this probably is. And it just ends up being way better than it has any right to be. So because uh, I found the same thing. I was like, who made this and where did they go? And when they interview Sales or Teague, neither of them talk about the producers and none of the producers have come forward. Well, the so, producers went on to make Albert Pyun's Sword and the Sorcerer. There Which is you also go. an okay. infamous movie where they're like, we don't know who owns the rights to it or who made Which it. Which like, makes me think 100% yeah. this is money laundering. Yeah, it's got to be. Which, you know what? I'm glad we have Albert Pune. We have Alligator. <laughs> right, yeah. I'm, I will give you my money to launder. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. And uh, on that note, I think we can wrap up for today. So Will and Justin, again, a pleasure having you both on. Will, what are you working on these days? I have two podcasts. I have The Important Cinema Club and I have Michael and Us, and those keep me very busy. And how do people follow you on the social medias? I am at Will Sloan ESQ, uh, like Esquire. Like Esquire? Does it stand for something else? No, it's no it, it is Esquire. It does. Okay. I, I don't just... want people to spell out the whole word Esquire, you know. Gotcha. Okay. Justin, how about you? What are you up to these days? Uh, you can listen to me on the Important Cinema Club, a podcast I do with Will every week. You can also check out, I distribute Blu-rays uh, through a company called Gold Ninja Video. And you can check out goldninjavideo.com for more of those. And you just got yourself a fancy film scanner, so there's some good stuff coming. Oh, I'm excited. I'm looking at the mail, waiting for that film, that very expensive film scanner to arrive. <laughs> While I have a whole bunch of film prints, including some lost Canadian films that are waiting to get scanned. So, I'm Folks, you so guys excited. better buy some of these DVDs because Justin's <laughs> going to need that money soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> soon? You, I mean, now, now. <laughs> You have Skip Tracer coming, right? Yes, I do have the Canadian classic Skip Tracer coming down the line. So I'm very excited I about that. I will pre-order my copy of that because <laughs> that's one of my favorites. All right. And you can join us next week where we watch 70s sex symbols transition into 80s sex symbols. We're looking at American Gigolo and Urban Cowboy. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland and featured Will Sloan and Justin DeClue as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.